Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Holy Thursday service. Uh, I invite you to stand and pray with me as we get ready to worship tonight. Jesus, as we think about um, the final night that you spent with your disciples, the intensity of that moment, um, we think about the way that the reason you came to earth was for uh, us. The purpose was to take the punishment for our sins. And um, it's incredible to think about the fact that you as God, that you could have been so removed from our situation, so removed from our pain, um, left us in our mess, but Jesus, you got right down into it. And in fact, you carried it on yourself on the cross. And we celebrate that tonight. We thank you for that. And uh, just ask that you would draw us deeper, deeper in love with you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Anybody else uncomfortable? I want you to realize something. When Jesus walked in, took off his outer garments, walked around and started washing the disciples' feet, it was really uncomfortable. If you think that introduction (laughs) was tense, imagine how the disciples felt. Imagine how uncomfortable it was to see Jesus come in, strip himself down, which already was highly embarrassing for a respected teacher of Israel. Put on a servant's towel, make his way around the disciples and begin washing their feet. Things must have been flying through their minds, but I bet that room was at least as silent as this one. Until Jesus got to Peter. Good old Peter. We can count on him to say something. At first, Peter objects, no, Lord, don't wash my feet. What are you doing? You can't do this. Jesus kind of explains, if you don't let me do this, it's going to cause problems for you. You need to be a part of this. And then he's like, well, then give me a bath. The tension in that room was probably so palpable that everybody's ears were burning. Everybody was feeling a little sweaty. The teacher wasn't doing what the teacher was supposed to do. The teacher doesn't come around and wash the feet. This was an incredibly uncomfortable thing for them to see and then to be a part of. Kind of like the teacher comes up in front with their mic already on, ready to start. There's no awkward silence, right? It, it broke all the cultural norms. It really threw their minds off. So imagine what an incredibly vivid picture it was for them. Imagine how that would have really grabbed hold of their mind for the rest of the night. That's going to be important for what we're going to get into, but... Uh, Since I didn't have a chance to introduce myself, let me start by doing that. My name is James. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and uh, I have the pleasure of leading you through tonight's service, uh, which we call Holy Thursday. It's a celebration of the Last Supper, of of the events of the Last Supper, and ultimately culminating with communion. And so I'd love to just pray for us before we get into tonight, and uh, also so that I can relax from feeling really uncomfortable about that introduction. So here we go. (laughs) Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here tonight and to study your word. I know that I, I really have nothing to offer apart what you have to offer. That unless you speak tonight, it's gonna be pretty pointless. But I know that your spirit speaks. I know that your spirit will speak individually to each of us. And I pray, Lord, that tonight we would get to have an opportunity to be reminded of what Jesus has done for us and what that means. We thank you for this time. We love you in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <laughs> so when I, was, when I was planning to do this, I, my palms literally started sweating. <laughs> it's like, this is, you don't do this, right? This is all against all the rules and stuff like that. And I thought that was really interesting as I was thinking about how incredibly, like, cultural not normed this activity was just for us to imagine being one of the disciples, having this kind of setup, which was basically one of the first things that happened when they sat down to have their last dinner with Jesus, which by the way, they haven't yet discovered it's their last dinner with Jesus. 
If you don't mind, I'm gonna leave this unbuttoned because I don't think I should tuck it in while I'm on stage. Um, plus Chad's here, so. Um, and I'm being streamed, so there's a whole lot of reasons. Anyway, <laughs> after Jesus washes their feet, he sits down. He says, it says, uh, John 13, 12, when he, had sat, uh, or when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher, uh, if then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. This was a stark picture for the disciples, for their Lord, their master, their teacher to come around and degrade himself the way he did. Break all the cultural norms, create this incredibly tense feeling for them to do this for them to wash their dirty, disgusting feet, right? Men's feet are not pleasant. Men's feet and sandals, much worse. Men's feet, sandals, dirt. Ugh. And Jesus did this as, as an act of example for them, but also as a demonstration of the degree to which he would go for them. Because he's about to talk about that. And he says, if I've done this for you, and we all know who Jesus is, if he was willing to do this for us, can't we at least do it for one another? So the message tonight is please go home and wash one another's feet. Have a good night. Uh, no, obviously the message here is, is not that. It's, it's this idea of look how far Jesus would go, right? Look how far Jesus would go. Look what I will do for you, how, how I will serve you. I will lower myself to one of the worst positions in the household to wash the feet. And if I would do this for you, then shouldn't you be willing to do really much more for one another. It's a really interesting setup because he continues, he says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them, which makes sense, right? Knowing them and doing them are two very different things. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. This is an interesting transition Jesus starts to make. First, he gives this incredible example of servitude, right? First, he gives this incredible example of what it looks like to take care of one another. And then he subtly starts to shift the conversation to this idea of betrayal. He continues on. He says, <clears throat> um, I'm telling you now, uh, this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you that whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So he starts to illustrate this, this picture, right? He's saying there's kind of this betrayal aspect and then this other category, right? There's the betrayer and, and the rest of you, right? And he illustrates this further by saying, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Okay, if you thought the tension was bad before, imagine that statement. The 12, walking with Jesus for three and a half years, they're all good friends at this point. And Jesus just comes out and lays this out 
one of you will betray me. And <laughs> there's kind of this weird moment where they're all like, wait, is that, is that me? Is it, no, I don't, no, I won't, I, won't, I won't do that, right? They, they're all kind of like first looking inward, then they're looking around like, which one? him? You know, like this kind of weird tension. And so, uh, you know, the disciples look at one another, it says in verse 22, uncertain of whom he spoke. And then one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus's side. This is John. So Simon Peter, leave it to Peter. Thank you, Peter, uh, motioned to him and asked him of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is the one whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So then when he dipped the morsel and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, it's a, it's a big moment, right? Now, what you don't realize is happening in this moment is this is a way of honoring somebody at a, at a table. For the host or, the, or the, the person who was the most important person at the table to dip the food at Passover in, into, the, into the bitters and hand it off to somebody was, was a way to honor them. How interesting is that? How interesting is it that he takes this, this form of, of designation of honoring and puts it on Judas? And so... What, what just blows my mind, this is the strangest, strangest thing that happens. It says, uh, it says, so when he dipped the morsel, gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. And this, every time I read this, every time I read this passage, I'm like, why, why that timing? Was it like as soon as he ate that thing, then it was like God gave Satan permission to start what he was going to do? Was it just that Satan was like lurking, ready, and like, okay, now. Uh, like, what, what about that? That, that when, when Jesus designated who it was, Satan leapt in him. And I don't have the answer to that. If you were hoping I would, I have no idea what the answer is. <laughs> Sorry. That's going to happen again tonight, I'll warn you. Um, but for whatever reason, Satan enters Judas here, and he says, what you're going to do, do quickly. This is Jesus speaking. What are you going to do, do quickly. Okay, now no one at the table, it says, knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Okay, so let's take a moment and think about what's happening here because there's two ways we could sort of look at this. We could look at this as like Jesus sort of uh, very freaked out, right? He said that he was, he was nervous uh, or that he was, I should use the correct word that scripture says instead of making up my own words, troubled in spirit. That's the phrase, troubled in spirit. Jesus is troubled in spirit and he is looking around the table and then it's almost as if he sort of gets this knowledge and he's like, it's that guy. And it feels very like passive. That's, that's one way you could look at it. But I think the fact that Jesus chooses to designate Judas the way he does shows how in control Jesus is of this situation. He is the one driving the events that are going to happen. Nobody's putting himself in, or nobody's putting him in this position. Nobody is forcing him into anything. He is not the subject of some, you know, heinous crime that's just sort of happening out of his control. He is actively in control of every step of what is happening. And he is walking it out. And I think the fact that Satan waits until Jesus hands off that piece of bread as though he needed permission to start what he was going to do is a big clue here. 
And then catch that Jesus sends Judas to go do it. It's so easy to miss this. He literally tells Judas, go do what you were going to do. I know what you're up to. Go get to work. It's almost like, all right, it's time. Get moving. We got a lot of stuff to do tonight, Judas. If I'm going to meet the guards on time in the Garden of Gethsemane, you're going to have to get going now. See how controlled Jesus is in all of this. How incredibly uh, sovereign he demonstrates himself to be in the midst of this. This is really important for the next thing he's going to say. See, the very next thing that happens, right after him giving this morsel and Judas leaving, as he has the first communion with his disciples. Immediately after sending Judas out, who didn't belong at the table, he has the first communion with his disciples. And what he says in that communion, we will come back to, but he invites them to participate in this feasting on his body and drinking of his blood because of the sacrifice he is about to commit for them. So it is really important for the disciples to understand and have this perfect picture first of Jesus is willing to serve, his willingness to serve to an unlimited capacity, and second, his complete control over the situation. First, we see a picture of him going to great lengths, and second, we see a picture of him being fully in charge. And that really should inform us what happens with communion and what we are celebrating. That is a big clue, right? But there's one more thing I want to look at that happens after communion. And Jesus says this. When when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man, uh, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Anybody lost? I had to read this so many times. This is a confusing sentence. If you take the time to piece it out, he's actually saying something a lot simpler than it sounds. He's saying, I am glorifying God, the Father. The Father will glorify me. That's what he's saying. What a picture of what communion is celebrating. What a picture of the, the, the bread and the wine, what that is celebrating. Jesus, fully obedient to the Father, walks through life in complete surrender to what the Father asks him to do in willingness. He is in complete control of what he is choosing to step into and he allows it to happen and he is obedient all the way to the cross. And then what's gonna happen? God's going to glorify him in exchange. Amen. It's beautiful. It is such a cool picture. The more you start to chew on it, the, the bigger this picture gets. It's really, really cool. If we look at John 17, 4 and 5, a little bit later in the night, Jesus is talking about the same kind of thing. He says it this way. I glorified you on earth. He's talking to the Father. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence Catch this, with the glory I had with you before the world existed. That is cool. That is really powerful. 
I like the way that Paul, looking back on this situation, says it in Philippians. He's trying to get the Philippians to think about what Jesus has done for them. And he says, starting in verse five, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And then catch what he says next. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that in, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. That is incredible. That is incredible. So what's really cool <laughs> is then to add to that, to help us be like, okay, cool, now what? <laughs> right? Because there's kind of that element of like, I love this. I'm invested. I buy in. I'm so grateful for Jesus. What do I do with this? <laughs> right? The next thing he says, little children, yet while I am with you, I, a little while I am with you, you will seek. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. But a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I, I really love that this is what follows that last thing. Jesus paints this incredible picture of his glory and the glory of the Father, right? This incredible picture. He invites us into it through the, the act of communion, through what he's going to do on the cross. And then he paints a picture of, now go love people. <laughs> he says, you're going to be known by your love for one another. It's like if someone is just walking past and sees a couple of you hanging out, he's like, oh, that, that, those, those have got to be some Christians. They're loving each other really well. Right? It's this incredible identity he wants to sort of stamp on us as Christians that will be known by our love. In, in John 15, he says it a little bit differently, just a little bit later. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Okay, this is harking back to what he did at dinner. I'm going to strip down. I'm going to wash your feet. I'm going to demonstrate to you what it looks like to go to the lengths that I'm willing to go to for you. So now I'm going to go to the cross. What does that mean for you? Right? He continues on. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down their life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends for all that I have heard from the father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. 
I, I want you to realize the context of when Jesus is saying all this. He's having his last dinner with his closest friends. He's giving instructions to the disciples about how he wants them to carry on. And his instructions, love one another. First, he demonstrates communion, invites them into remembrance of what he's going to do for them. And then out of that, he wants them to love one another. He ties this idea together. When we sit for communion, when we spend time in communion, we glorify him. We celebrate what he's done. We celebrate how God has given him the name above all names. And then we obey him by loving one another. So I want you to spend a little bit of time digging. This last season has not been an easy season for loving one another. This last season has put a lot of strain on us and has put us in a position where oftentimes we find ourselves not being oh so loving, even to our brothers and sisters in Christ, let alone to those outside of the church. And the question I would ask you is if Jesus would go to the cross for you, lay down his life for you, what can you offer to others? If you have received that sort of love, if you are living in that sort of love, how far can you sacrifice to love someone else? It's not easy, right? It's the question that we sort of have to ask ourselves on a regular basis. I by no means have this figured out. But this question is tied into the act of communion. It's crazy. It's crazy that Jesus goes through this pattern and the, the thing that he follows, this idea of loving him and glorifying him with is loving each other. And so we have to ask ourselves, how am I walking that out? How am I loving one another? How am I loving my neighbor? How am I carrying out acts of love? And there's probably places you can quickly discover in you as you think about it, I wasn't so loving in that situation. Maybe it's someone on the opposite side of the political aisle <laughs> or someone who doesn't agree with you on your perspective on COVID, right? Those are two very powerful tension points, right? But Jesus asks us to, like him, lay down our lives. So, in a little bit, we're going to get to participate in communion together, and I'll, I'll lead us through that. But before we get there, I'm going to just give us a little time to reflect on the second half first. How are we loving one another? How are we putting Jesus on display within ourselves? And if there's places you discover, hey, that's not happening in me in this, this area, this area, that's not a place where you got to beat yourself up, right? A lot of times that's kind of our goal is like, well, Darn it, I messed up. I better beat myself up till I feel better about this. <laughs> it's just an opportunity to turn that place in our lives over to Jesus. It's an opportunity to spend some time with him doing a little bit of business and realizing, hey, I'm not loving you in the best possible way in these areas. Will you help me to do that? Will you help me to love my neighbor as myself? Will you help me to love my brother and sister as you loved them? Because man, have you loved me? You went so far as to die on a cross to pay for my sins. So I'm going to invite the band to come up. And I just want to encourage you to spend the next few minutes asking two simple questions. 
How have I been loved by Jesus? Because that's what communion is all about. And how can I carry that love out to my brothers and my sisters and my neighbors? And in a little bit after this first song, I'll come back up and I'll walk us through some worship or some uh, communion. Father, I just thank you for the opportunity to dive into this. I thank you that um, you gave us this really incredible example of love when you, when you sent your son to die on a cross. It doesn't, it doesn't get any higher of love than that. There, there's no greater love than what Jesus did for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that love by Jesus' command is to permeate in us and through us to other people. And I know, Lord, I know I'm not very good at this. I know that there are times when I discover that my motivations are 100% selfish. I, I'm, I'm missing an opportunity to love my neighbor. I'm, I'm purposefully ignoring an opportunity to love my neighbor. But Lord, I just invite you to illustrate for me the great love you had for me when you sent Jesus to die on the cross. Would you help us to capture the incredible love that Jesus demonstrated washing the disciples' feet, demonstrating what it looked like to be a servant to one another? And would that really captivate us would that love motivate us? Would that love drive us? So that we'd be a people known by our love. Would we be the kind of people that when someone sees two of us hanging out together, like, oh, they're Christians. Would we be the kind of people that when we, talk, when we talk to our neighbors, they're, they're completely puzzled by the way we talk to them because they've been you know, rude or whatever to us and we just continue to love them. Not because we trump it up out of ourselves, not because we try to invent that love, but because you demonstrated your love for us. You gave us the spirit to be able to carry that out. And because that spirit still resides in us and we have our trust in Jesus, we are full of that love. And I just pray, Lord, as we, as we wrestle with that, would our continued reminder of your glory your name, which is above every name, lead us into obedience. You deserve uh, our, our obedience to your commands. And your command is to love. And so Lord, I just ask, would you help us to wrestle through that? In Christ, and we pray.
Ah. Uh.